Listening to 95.7 FM KDRT, Davis, California.
Hey, it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. Notice we're mixing up the music a little bit here and there. A little change of pace here since we're doing our remote broadcasts. Why not? Let's start with the weather and what we're looking forward to this week. Today's date is April 16th, and we're looking for a high today, Thursday, of 78 degrees. Finally getting some temperatures up around 80, that kind of threshold temperature we want to see before you really should think about putting those tomatoes in the ground that you've been planting for the last four or five weeks. Low tonight, Thursday night, 50 degrees. Friday, 73 degrees. Friday night, 50. Saturday, 71. Saturday night, 49. And here's an interesting change coming on Sunday. Slight chance of rain and the high is only going to be 67. But Saturday, Sunday night's only going to be 50 degrees. So we're not getting much colder with this little storm that's passing through. Just cooler during the daytime. Nighttime temperatures remaining fairly stable. Then Monday, Chance of rain in the morning, chance of showers after 11 a.m., only going to be about 64 degrees, dropping down a little bit Monday night to 47. Tuesday, mostly sunny, going to be 72, and Tuesday night, 49 degrees. Wednesday, mostly sunny, 74 degrees. Been some really nutty weather in Southern California. I understand a lot more rain than usual down there. And then this extended discussion where we're looking at Sunday through Wednesday, there's going to be some, the showers that I mentioned are going to be pretty low impact. We're talking about a quarter to a half inch of rain total through that period. And um, probably more of it up in the foothills and the mountains with the possibility of e- even of some thunder showers up there. The downside of this is that rainfall at this time of year leads to fungus problems. And we're already getting the calls and comments about various disease problems, the typical ones that we'd expect, but they were kind of on a hiatus with the dry weather we'd been having before. So now we're seeing powdery mildew, downy mildew, and rust on roses. We're seeing uh, rust and on some of the mallows, the hollyhocks and things like that, and the snapdragons. We are getting calls about peach leaf curl, which is interesting. We had almost no peach leaf curl at the time of bud break on the peach trees, which is when the primary infection occurs. Almost all the new growth came out unaffected. I walked through my orchard. I couldn't find any on my roughly 15 peaches and nectarines. I couldn't find any peach leaf curl at all during the two to three weeks after bud break and the early growth. Now, because of the rain, we're getting a little bit of what would be Typically, the secondary infection, just a bit here and there, the edges of a leaf, a few spots on the leaf curling and cupping the way they do with a sort of blister appearance, and a handful of people calling about this, perhaps unaccustomed to what peach leaf curl normally looks like, because this is nothing. We're getting 5 to 10% leaf infection. It's on part of the leaf. It's barely affecting the vigor of the plant. So we've talked about peach leaf curl many times before. In particular, there's nothing to be done once the leaves are emerged at all. Any spray you're going to do for peach leaf curl, we do at the time of bud break, right before bud break, which is early February in the Sacramento Valley. 
We don't worry too much about it because the plants typically outgrow it. And there's really nothing to be done, as I've said, as once the growth has begun. So the tree will get it. It varies from year to year as to how many leaves are affected. We range last year, 2019, we had 90% leaf infection in some cases because of the amount of rainfall we had. This year, 2020, barely even 5% leaf infection. It varies from one variety to another from year to year. The primary correlation of the extent of peach leaf curl is whether it was raining and fairly cool conditions at the time of bud break and initial growth. That's the strongest correlation with the percentage of leaves that are affected and how severely they're affected. If you have a year where it looks like it's gonna be pretty cool and rainy as they, they bud out and break, uh, the, break the buds and grow, that would be a good year perhaps to do a dormant spray if you're gonna do one at all. And the dormant sprays that we use nowadays are liquid copper. But again, they don't do any good here in April once we've got a little bit of what you might call secondary infection. Uh, let's go to some of the PSAs we like to do for you. And right now, with the situation in the area, we'd like to mention two of the organizations that are really helping out a lot with folks who are having food shortages and other issues. STEAC, STEAC is the way everybody likes to pronounce it, S-T-E-A-C is the Short-Term Emergency Aid Committee, provides immediate short-term emergency assistance to low-income families in Yolo County. Services include shelter assistance and emergency food supplies. I can only imagine how busy they are right now. For more information or to offer support to stake, call 530-758-8435 or visit steacstake.org. Likewise, there's a real important organization, the uh, Yolo Food Bank. Hunger in rural areas is typically higher than the national average. Yolo County is a rural area. There are thousands of food insecure people in Yolo County, including more than 13,000 children. Founded in 1970, the Yolo Food Bank now serves 25,000 people every month. Let's just take that number from this PSA and multiply it several times at the moment. They're distributing 3 million pounds of food every year. Again, I'm sure that's higher now. If you need assistance or if you can help, and they are looking for volunteers and they are looking for funds right now. So if you want to donate some food, funds, or time, call 530-668-0690 or just visit yolofoodbank.org. Couple questions that have come in by email from Danielle, who says she wants to say, I appreciate you taking the time to do the show from your home right now. I love listening. Uh, Danielle lives in Riverside, California, Inland Valley of Southern California. Been there. I have a question. Can you go over the basics of composting? What should I not put in a pile? I would like to do this in a pile form, not in a bin. I'm assuming that is possible. How long does it take to cook? How do I get it to cook? What are the biggest pieces I can throw in there? How big should the pile be? Anything else you can think of relating to composting? I wrote you and Lois a few weeks ago about digging decomposed granite out of my raised garden beds. Well, so far I've completed 20 beds. You know, it's good exercise. Thank you for answering all my questions and thanks for your continued detailed explanations of things garden related. I truly appreciate your show. Thank you, Danielle. And we appreciate the questions and the nice comments. By the way, congratulations on digging decomposed granite out. That is one of the hardest jobs that you can come across. In our years in landscaping, when I was a landscape contractor, there were two things that I had great difficulty estimating the labor amount for. One was moving gravel, and the other was digging decomposed granite. Uh, they're pretty permanent choices, so think twice before you put in gravel or decomposed granite. Speaking 
as a landscaper. So what is compost? <clears throat> compost is just basically decomposing or decomposed plant material, uh, plant matter. It can be bark, wood chips, uh, ground up leaves, unground up leaves, lawn clippings, things from your kitchen, and sometimes people put other things in there, including food scraps of various types. And that gets to the first thing, what you should not put in a pile. Uh, generally speaking, no meat or fat or anything like that. First of all, it would potentially draw rodents. And second, it can, it doesn't, they don't break down readily and uh, the odor can become a problem. So I would stay away from anything like that. Kitchen scraps are fine. You can put in, you know, trimmings from your vegetables. If it's a plant material, it can go into your compost pile. The bigger it is, the coarser it is, the woodier it is, the longer it takes to break down. And the higher you pile it and the more you water it and the more sun it's in and the more bacterial activity you have because of perhaps some extra soil in there to hasten the process, the faster it'll break down. So composted stuff, piled up stuff in the process of composting, say in the summer in the Sacramento Valley or interior, say Riverside, in two to three months, you can get a pretty rapid breakdown. And if you keep turning it, it'll happen faster. But ultimately, in terms of the benefit to your soil and your garden, there's not a huge difference between piling it up and composting and then spreading out or taking the same stuff and spreading it out in the first place. So I have made compost piles on my property, which is exactly what you're describing. Take some of those things, your leaves. I always do this with the leaves that I rake off my driveway. Pile them up someplace. If you do it in the fall, you'll do it when the winter rains are coming along. That may be all you have to do. It may be very, that, that in my case, with big sycamore leaves and where I get giant, giant piles of them, I'll drag them on a tarp over to some part of the vegetable garden. I'll heap them there a couple feet deep and I'll just let the rain come along. And by spring, they've almost entirely disintegrated, except typically for a sort of a fine layer on top that I just rake off at that point. During the drought, it was interesting to watch those leaves just lie there inert and not make any progress whatsoever because we had weeks would go by without rainfall. So moisture is an important part of it. Wherever you make your compost pile, whether it's in a carefully constructed bin or just a heap someplace in your yard, make sure you have a way to water it. And in a hot, dry climate, that'll be something you'll want to water once a week or a little more often is fine. Don't let it get soggy and anaerobic to the point that you smell sulfurous material. But my father's technique, when he had a fully functioning compost pile, where he had three separate parts, one was incoming, one was working, one was the stuff sort of screened and going out to the garden, he just rigged it up so there was a sprinkler that sprayed onto the compost pile when he was running, when it, it was just part of the same sprinkler line that went to other parts of the yard. And so about once a week in San Diego, that climate, this was quite appropriate. He was watering the shrubs in that area and the compost pile got watered and that worked fine. I also recall that he would throw some source of nitrogen on every now and then, either some inexpensive manure that he'd bought or a handful of, of lawn fertilizer, just regular lawn food. The purpose of that is to provide food for the organisms that are in there breaking down the plant matter. And uh, soil helps with that a lot too. So the classic technique is layers of brown and green, as they'll tell you, layers of leafy stuff, debris from the vegetable garden, kitchen scraps, and then a, a fine layer of soil over the top, soil that you've kept nearby, just garden soil. That provides, that helps to trap the moisture a little bit. That provides some organic, uh, excuse me, some bacterial 
microbes that will help to break down the organic component faster and it sort of feeds the pile basically and uh, it makes a ultimately a better texture for the whole material when it gets to the end product as well but again you don't have to do all of that uh, compost and mulch are basically the same thing in different stages if you're using mulch that's made from plant material. So a simple thing to do if you're listening and you don't really want to deal with all this of making an actual compost pile is take those leaves that you rake up and instead of sending them out with a city pickup, which they would really prefer you not do, just layer them out in your vegetable garden that isn't planted during the winter, you know, parts that you aren't using, or around shrubs, and then just rake them away from the crown when we get into warm weather in the spring if they haven't fully disintegrated. Make them go back into the soil. They're one of the most beneficial things you can add to soil, and the simplest way to add them to soil is to just pile them up somewhere. You'll notice as you rake them and move them around, Earthworms have moved up from the soil into the pile of leaves if there's enough moisture. Uh, little black beetles that people often get concerned about will come scurrying out when you rake it away. Those are either beneficial or completely harmless, at least in our area. Uh, you could look in there and you'll find wriggly little things, which are the larvae of various decomposing um, insects that function to help decompose the material. They're all beneficial. There's nothing to worry about. There are actually beneficial insects that overwinter in leaf piles. There's a very important one, the leatherwing beetle or soldier beetle, that overwinters and actually lives for well over a year in its larval stage at the interface of moist composting organic material and native soil. So if you want to encourage one of the most important beneficial aphid eaters in your garden, one of the simplest ways to do it is to keep a nice fine, it doesn't have to be fine, a nice layer of leafy material breaking down somewhere where there's moisture all the time. That doesn't mean you have to be watering constantly the whole yard, but wherever your compost is, raking that stuff out into a sort of undisturbed part and keeping it watered will actually encourage one of the most important beneficials that'll feed on aphids in your yard. One of the ones that most people don't know, the leatherwing beetle, black body, orange head, voracious aphid eater. It's one that you can encourage very simply by keeping a working compost pile with extra compost nearby, extra leaves, just kind of continuing to break down because you've added moisture and created that excellent environment. So you get it to cook just by piling up the right materials, alternating more or less layers of green and brown, as they like to say. How long does it take? Two to four months, typically, in the warm climate, in full sun, in the shade, in cooler areas. It takes longer. In the course of a growing season, it should break down if it's functioning properly. And the bigger the pieces you throw in, little sticks and branches and things like that, well, it'll take a couple of years to break down, I can tell you from experience. So bigger, woody things, people like to run through a chipper. If you get serious about composting, you might want to get a compost grinder, a chipper that you use either mechanically, those are a lot of, you, want, you want exercise, look for a mechanical one, or a power one, which needs to be used with considerable care. And they can take sticks up to a half inch to an inch quite readily and turn them into essentially chipped sticks, which will then break down more quickly. Compost can be made from shavings, sawdust, pumice from grapevines, uh, you name it. Anything can be turned into compost. The state of California actually regulates what companies can put in a bag and call compost. And this gives you a little guide about exactly what the process is. You can take anything, sawdust, I mentioned that one, uh, pile it up and add water and let it cook. Let it come to an internal temperature, a particular internal, internal temperature, just under 200 degrees, I believe is the legal regulation, uh, for a fixed period of time. 
And that will do a couple of things. It'll kill any pathogens that are in there. It'll hasten the breakdown of the organic material into that decomposed stuff. And um, it'll turn it into something that isn't going to tie up nutrients in the soil if you happen to amend it. It'll provide nutrients to the soil. So compost does a couple things. It, it actually is a source of nitrogen and phosphorus and potassium, usually fairly limited amounts, but some. And there's actually been studies that show a surprising amount of some of those things. So if you're in an area where you have questions about your soil fertility, get a soil test done first. And one thing they will probably test for is the percentage of organic material. They'll tell you whether you need more. Compost is a simple way to provide more. And they'll tell you whether you're high, low, or, or right in the right range on phosphorus and potassium. If you're very high in phosphorus, which is common, be cautious about adding too much compost all at once because it can contain phosphorus. So you might overdo it. I wouldn't worry too much about that, but be aware that compost that's been properly composted is generally a source of nutrients. Compost that you buy in a bag is a little different than what you're going to make in your own garden. When you buy it in a bag, not only has it been piled up and turned and mixed and brought to a particular internal temperature and kept properly moist the whole time, almost every company I'm aware of now that sells good quality compost in a bag adds some kind of organic fertilizer. One that we get, they add 15% chicken manure. That's one of our most popular products for people growing flowers and vegetables because it provides the benefits of the compost as well as the benefits of manure, but doesn't overdo either of them. Um, other companies will add small amounts of organic fertilizer or the more economical ones, they'll add small amounts of synthetic fertilizer, you know, conventional sources like sulfate of ammonia or something like that because it's a lot cheaper. Um, in any event, they're providing you a little bit of nitrogen so a lot of people put out compost, see results, think it's because of the compost. It's actually because of the nitrogen component. You can accomplish the same thing by taking every now and then a partial bag of chicken manure or regular manure and just putting that as one of the layers on your compost pile. That'll add manure basically is compost, is decomposing plant matter that's gone through the digestive tract of an animal, chicken or uh, steer most commonly. And they range from 1% to 3% nitrogen, 1% steer, 3% chicken, somewhere in that range. There's other forms of manure. Any form of animal manure uh, that you're likely to encounter is a fine thing to add to the compost pile. It can be rabbit pellets. It can be from your goats, whatever. Go ahead and turn it in there and mix it in and let that compost pile cook for a little while. And that'll make it less likely that the manure would burn if it were applied directly to the plants. And then that becomes part of what you're spreading out when you spread the compost. So the compost then becomes more than just decomposed organic matter, decomposed plant matter. It becomes kind of a mild fertilizer. And it can be something you can spread around in your vegetable garden, spread around your flower garden, and so forth. And it makes it safer to use chicken manure in particular, because chicken manure has been, you know, has if it's fresh in particular, can have pathogens in it that you'd be concerned about spreading out in the vegetable garden straight out of the chicken coop. But if it's been composted and brought to that appropriate internal temperature, that should be high enough to reduce any risk from those particular pathogens. So adding manure to a compost pile is a great way to go. You're layering green and dirt and perhaps some manure. You're turning it, you're keeping it evenly moist so that you don't want it to dry out. That'll stop the whole process of cooking. And then at some point you spread it out. Now people who are really serious about this will often screen it to make it finer. There's no need to do that. One of the simplest things you can do after your heap has 
shrunk down and appears to be getting more or less decomposed in the middle is to just rake off the coarse stuff that's still on top that hasn't composted because it was on the outside of the pile. That's the start of your next pile, kind of like your sourdough starter. That's the start of your next pile. And you take the rest and you scatter it around the garden, mulching it around vegetable plants or flowers and getting the benefits of that organic material and the nutrients. So compost does a couple things in the soil, whether you incorporate it or put it on the surface. It provides some nutrients and being ionically very active, meaning it holds on to positive ions. Compost will hold nutrients that you apply otherwise. So you put some fertilizer on, the compost helps to hold them in place until the plant can use them, and it holds moisture. And a layer of it on the surface helps to trap moisture that you've applied as well. So it retains water, reduces the need for frequency of irrigation, and provides some nutrients directly to the plant, and then holds nutrients that you apply separately. Those are all some of the benefits of compost. One of the biggest benefits is to your local municipality. They would love for you to stop sending lawn clippings, leaves, old tomato plants, all that kind of debris off to the landfill. Landfills are getting full, and it's actually important not just from an ecological standpoint, but from a regulatory standpoint to reduce the amount of organic material that's going to your local landfill, at least in our area. So they would really appreciate it if you would either redistribute those around your yard or grind them up pile them up, compost them, whatever is appropriate, just have them go back into your soil. It always is sort of frustrating to me to see wonderful leaves coming down from trees, landing on lawns, being piled up and taken away. That's just carrying away nutrients, carrying away organic material that could better go back into your garden. So composting is a good thing to do, but a lot of people get kind of turned off or put off or concerned about it because they read about all these complex methods that people use for uh, making special compost piles and bins and things like that. Those are great. Most of them simply give a, a little more order to the process. It keeps it in one part of the yard. Or if they're those bins that you turn, they make it all go faster. And uh, so they're just something that people like to do to get their compost perhaps more uniform or more quickly. But they're not necessary. Uh, mulch becomes compost. And uh, it does it without any help from you if you spread it out and Leave it in a place where there's reasonable moisture and reasonable bacterial activity. Thanks for the question. The next letter here is from Dennis in Morgan Hill. Dennis says, thank you for the podcast. I enjoy the show and the banter between you and Lois. Well, hopefully we can bring that back soon. Great listening, especially as I putter in my garden. Let's hope this virus pandemic comes to an end and all of us can get back to normal. I've got to say about that, boy, people are going to have great gardens this year. We've never seen anything like this in the nursery industry, how, how many people have decided to expand their vegetable garden, start one for the first time. Let me tell you, it's going to be quite something. The Victory Garden is back. So anyway, Dennis lives in Morgan Hill, south of San Jose, Sunset Zone 14. Along the north side of our property, we have a myrtle hedge, maybe 15 years old, that has overwhelmed the split rail fence. I'd like to reduce the height of the hedge by half and maybe push back the hedge to expose more of the fence. Any recommendations on what time of year, how to do it? It's considering the following. Whack it back 50% in height would expose a lot of interior branches and leave me a dead top. Whack 50% of the green and hope to encourage more green from the interior. Then repeat maybe annually until I get to the desired height. Or three, pull out the hedge and start again. It's really not my favorite. Or that option, I guess, is really not my favorite. The photos are great, Dennis, because they confirm that it is actually Myrtle. Uh, we get people using common names a lot. And Myrtle is one of those very familiar shrubs. So there's a lot of things that are called Myrtle, like crepe Myrtle and Others, sometimes when someone says myrtle, I wonder if they actually mean boxwood or something else. It's a big hedge, and uh, it's gotten overgrown and woody on the interior. 
The question with any big overgrown evergreen shrub, by evergreen I don't mean conifer necessarily, I mean any evergreen, including myrtles and boxwoods and things like that, is this a species that has a lot of growth buds ready to sprout further down on the stem if you cut them to open them up and bring sunlight to that interior that will, that will cast itself upon those buds and stimulate them to break and grow. Some plants, if you cut them back hard, that's that. Junipers come to mind. Junipers are not my favorite for hedges for a lot of reasons, but one in particular is if you ever have to prune them, they look brown and they either take a very long time to sprout out from a hard pruning or they simply don't. They just remain dead where you prune them. So they don't look real good if you have to, if you put a juniper in a place where it doesn't really have room, uh, at some point you're going to have to prune it and it'll make it quite ugly. By comparison, on the other end of the spectrum, let's take privets. You can cut a privet to the ground. Let's say you're doing a remodel and you're concerned about your Texas privet hedge and you wonder whether you can cut it back severely. Well, the answer is yes, you can, no matter what. I've seen people chainsaw them to a stump and they re-sprout quite readily. And almost all of the plants we use commonly for evergreen hedges have the characteristic of having a lot of growth buds. Uh, whether it's boxwood, although it's slow growing by comparison with the others, or the myrtle that you're talking about, or privets, or pittosporum, the one we call mock orange, here in the West, almost all of these broadleaf evergreens do have growth buds in there waiting to grow. But some of them will take a long time to sprout out and they look absolutely ghastly if you prune them back hard all at once. First of all, I would do it at a mild time of year, which means spring or fall. And here in the valley, that would mean March or April. I'd get it done pretty quick if you're going to do it now because we're getting towards our hotter weather both here and where you are. Or I would do it in October, early November, but not during a dry, windy, hot spell as we frequently have in the fall. I'd wait till milder, real truly fall-like weather is on its way. And of your three options, I would do the number two. Whack 50% of the green and hope to encourage more green from the interior. Because if you do the first one, cutting 50% in height, that'll make a whole lot of dead stuff. And then you'll have to wait as much as a couple of months before those growth buds even begin to push out. And in some cases, they simply don't. I mean, they, the plant may simply die back from where you cut it. It'll be a long time before it looks good again. So we always like to take these things down by degrees. 25% at a time is a rule of thumb that I often use when I'm talking to people. There's an example here in Davis, and it happens to be a myrtle hedge, a compact myrtle hedge. And it's a beautiful, fascinatingly artistic topiary that was created uh, around a corner lot on, over in East Davis, where a, a real artist, this, this man, unfortunately, he passed away, but he was an astonishing topiary artist. I don't even like topiary usually, but this one just blew me away. He turned it into a castle all the way around the guy's property. And it required rather specialized pruning, which he did for quite a while. And then after he died, the owner of the property tried to start doing it himself. Then he ran into an issue with code violation. It was extending about six inches. This is true. And this just blows me away how some people are. About six inches over the sidewalk. And so someone anonymously complained to the city in spite of the fact that, in my opinion, they had plenty of clearance. But the city sent him a letter telling him he had to cut it back all the way to the property line. So I went out and consulted on this one because I considered this a real piece of art. I mean, this was worth preserving to the greatest extent possible. And we looked at it and I said, if you have to cut this back hard, as they're telling you, literally shear it back to the property line, it will look dead 
all the way onto the interior for probably four to six months. If they'll let you do it by degrees, thinning it out a bit to get some sunlight in there to get some interior buds to break and grow and start to fill in and then cut back to them, the hedge will be healthier. But it really depends on what their enforcement action is going to be. And so he went and he worked with the city for a while and they actually allowed him to do it the way I suggested, do some thinning, get some sunlight in the interior, get it to bud out and it worked great. But then staff changed and extended over the sidewalk again and the person complained again. And so the city sent him a letter that he had to come in compliance. And this time they weren't going to put up with the four to six months that it was likely to take to recover. So he had to take head shears and cut it back all the way around to the property line. And it looked god awful when he got done. Honestly, it was completely bare on the interior. It looked like a brown hedge. So we were very curious what would happen. And the answer is that in the case of Myrtle, there are enough buds everywhere on the small stems all the way down to the main trunk that within about two to three months, there was a nice, we might say, outline of green. And within another month or so, the hedge looked okay again. And at that point, he understood that it was probably best if he could keep trimming it lightly, frequently, rather than having to do this severe pruning. So any of you listening with evergreen hedges, you need to look at them and know whether they have those growth buds ready to grow, uh, ready to go if you cut them back. Uh, if you do it hard, some plants die back, some of them re-sprout. In the case of myrtle, it will re-sprout. But in the, in the interest of preserving the appearance of the plant and not having this long period of ghastly brownness, I suggest 25% total, 50% of the green at first, and then coming back again in about six months and taking it back again, or annually, if that's the best way to do it. Pulling out the hedge, it's a beautiful hedge. I wouldn't do that. I think it's actually quite lovely from your picture, and I always like to encourage them. But one other option, if you ever decide to go that route, myrtle turns into a beautiful tree if you prune it that way. Uh, there are some samples around the Davis area. There used to be one in front of a fraternity house right on Russell Boulevard that local Davisites could look at, a couple of them on campus that I'm aware of, where you spend some time thinning them out, opening them up to expose the trunk. And they develop an interesting bark and quite a rugged character. So if the time comes that you decide to renovate your yard and you're tired of this hedge being a hedge, you might go in and choose half of them or a couple of them and start training them up more tree-like and start removing the others and get some trees with some real interesting character and a rather noble pedigree to enhance your new landscape. Hope that helps. Thanks for the question. And the next question is one that's been coming up a lot in our shop uh, because of the ups and downs of the weather and how early everybody wanted to jump the gun on their vegetable gardens. Hello, Don and Lois. Thank you for your continuing efforts. I'm heading, heeding your call for emails. Yes, if you have questions, davisgardenshow at gmail.com is great. Hoping for an early summer, I gambled on three cheap tomato plants for early planting, and it appears they are stunted. Does having weak plants in the soil increase the risk of pathogens that endanger my later plantings? Should I remove these root and all as a precaution? The three are Early Girl, Sweet 100, and another small fruited sweetie that lost its tag. It's a new raised planter filled with native loam from nearby areas in my yard. Well, first of all, congratulations on filling your raised planter with native soil from nearby because that's an unusual circumstance. Most commonly people buy in topsoil or buy in bagged stuff, and that's a whole different conversation in terms of managing nutrients and watering. That's a good start. Um, 
I don't think that plants that are stressed by the temperature issues that we've been experiencing in late March and early April, the lower temperatures that are optimal, it was early to plant if you're in USDA zone 9, sunset zone 14, it was definitely early to plant. It doesn't lead to any increased risk of pathogens. That's a specific question. There are certain diseases that you should look for on tomato plants when you buy them. You should check the leaves for spots. And uh, there's, there's three different diseases that you can look for, and you can look up and find pictures of these. In fact, if you go to davisgardenshow.com, the, the webpage where we host this show, uh, you'll find from a year or so ago a, a picture that I put up there of the three major leaf diseases of tomatoes, and that's bacterial speck, early blight, and late blight. If you see those on a plant at your local garden center or your local hardware store, I suggest you bring it to the attention of the clerk and say, this plant has a disease, nothing serious, but I suggest you isolate them or get rid of them. Uh, how they react might tell you something about how they run their garden department. But um, there's one thing you don't need to worry about. That's the sort of the bleached appearance that sometimes happens on tomato plants. They're coming out of greenhouses. They're coming out and moving to the nurseries and turning over so fast this year, especially that they don't have any time to take them out of the greenhouse, harden them up for a few days, and then send them off to the retail nursery. They're going right out of that nice, warm, sheltered, humid greenhouse and going straight to the nursery yard and then into your yard. And a very common circumstance when that happens is sort of a bleached or slightly burnt look on the leaves. That's nothing to worry about. It's just what we actually call it greenhouse shock. That's not an official term, but it's just a, an environmental stress from having gone from that nice, mild environment to the sudden outdoor environment. Uh, that's nothing to be concerned about. But the spots on the leaves are, and the bacterial speck is, is a rounded spot. Early blight and late blight are, again, spots that appear to be perhaps spreading on the leaf. And in the case of late blight, spreading into the, the veins, into the petiole, into the stem, and causing dieback. Here in California and most of the arid west, even if you have those on a, on a plant, let's say your friend gives you one, you can often just pick off the leaf, dispose of it, check carefully, make sure there's no more on the plant, plant them, your spacing is wide enough, it's in a sunny location with good air movement, it's not going to be an issue for us. Even a little bit of rain, you know, check the leaves again carefully, pick off any that are affected. By the time we get to May or June, the rain is gone. You're watering at ground level. We don't have the conditions of humidity and rainfall here that cause those diseases to spread. Even in May 2019, when we had a lot of rainfall, it ended at the end of the month. We promptly hit 100 degrees in the first week of June. Humidity dropped to normal summer levels, and those disease problems went away. If you're listening in a rainier climate, particularly anywhere east of the Mississippi, late blight can be a huge problem. Late blight on a leaf will spread to the stem, will spread to the main plant, main part of the plant, kill it, and then in the next rainstorm, splash right on down the road to the next plant, and the next plant, and the next plant. So it's extremely important to watch for those if you're in one of those rainier summer climates. And you may want to inquire locally if there are fungicides that they recommend spraying. We don't have to do that here. I've never sprayed a tomato plant for disease ever. Uh, but I do know that in rainier climates, it is sometimes necessary to, to look at fungus 
problems and treat them with a fungicide, whether an organic one or a conventional. And if they're organic ones, they often have to be used as a preventative. So it might be something you'll want to talk about with your local garden center at the time you buy the plants. I've had customers come in to me from the Midwest or the Mid-Atlantic states who have moved to the Davis area wanting to know which fungicides we recommend for tomatoes. And we don't. We don't have to use them at all. But I do understand that there's a common... Uh, need for them, or in fact, even a rotation of different types might be necessary in those climates. So that's something you'll have to address locally. Generally speaking, those aren't a huge issue here. But the plant you're putting in the ground, unless it has one of those things, it's no, it's not going to be weaker or more, more prone to them. It's just going to sit there, sulking, cold roots, not able to take up nutrients very readily. Leaves will discolor a bit. Older leaves might yellow. You might see some discoloration to the sort of a purplish tinge. That's a, technically a phosphorus deficiency, but it's typically caused simply by the roots being unable to extract nutrients from the soil. You might not see much growth, and the leaves that do come out might curl or cup a bit, and people often are concerned they have a virus or something like that. No, generally it's just an environmental stress because the temperatures are too low and the roots are cold. So in the case of tomatoes, as soon as the soil warms up, gets to that 60, 65 degrees that we're looking for, uh, they'll grow. We watch them do this. There's acres and acres and acres of canning tomatoes. It's one of the number one crops in Yolo and Solano counties, which are where we are. And we watched them put in, they're planting tomatoes actually four weeks ago near me where I live outside of Dixon. And more of them have been going in for the last two weeks now that the soil is workable. They put them in if the soil is cold. I love to pull over, walk out there. Someday I promise I'll take a picture of some of these poor little seedlings. And uh, I see every deficiency in the book on these little plants. But as soon as it warms up, they take off and they grow and they give them the results thereafter. Those are canning tomatoes, so they're not real concerned about the, uh, the vigor of the plant. They're just looking for a crop. But overall, once things warm up, tomatoes will catch up. I would be far more concerned about your peppers and your eggplants. And a lot of the other summer vegetables are kind of somewhere in between on the spectrum of their uh, of their how badly they're affected by cold temperatures in the soil. Peppers and peppers and eggplant planted early often just fail to thrive for weeks and weeks and weeks. They really don't get going for six or seven weeks after you plant them. Very commonly, and I've I've said this before, but it's an experiment you might want to try wherever you're listening. Go ahead and put in a pepper plant, bell pepper at the start of your gardening season, and a month later, plant another one of the same variety nearby and see which one performs better. My own experience has been that the later planted ones grow faster, set more readily, produce bigger peppers, and produce more over the course of the season. So the stunting effect on a pepper or an eggplant, which are really much more warm weather requiring summer vegetables, will continue much longer than it does for a tomato. The biggest difference being a tomato, almost every variety you buy, is a vigorous vine. So once it gets going, it catches up. Peppers and eggplant are not. They're a little low herbaceous plants and they just don't have uh, the growth habit that enables them to make up for that lost time from the early root damage. So uh, getting back to the disease problems, those of you listening in colder, rainier climates should be aware now that uh, late blight resistance has been bred into a number of home garden tomato varieties. So if you've had a problem with late blight on your tomatoes, leaves dying rapidly, stems, side of the plant dying, whole plant sometimes killed by it, 
about over the last eight to 10 years, I've noticed more and more late blight resistant tomato varieties showing up on seed catalogs. Burt P. Seed Company, Harris Seeds, uh, that's one of the characteristics that they've that is added in the description. We sell plants, hybrid tomatoes, that are verticillium, fusarium, or nematode resistant or tolerant. But uh, the late blight resistance would be a really important characteristic for those of you in rainy or summer climate. So that's something to look for. Mostly you're going to find them in seed catalogs. These are home garden varieties. It could be your local retailer has them. We don't worry too much about that because, as I say, those diseases are not a big issue for us. None of those disease resistances, either the first ones that I mentioned or the late blight resistant, is going to be characteristic of heirlooms. So once again, in choosing your tomatoes, it's really important wherever you're listening to balance your portfolio, as we like to say. Have some hybrids. If you're in an area where diseases are a problem, have some hybrids with that built-in disease resistance. Try some heirlooms for fun. Plant a cherry tomato for the kids and try some different varieties each year because you never know from one year to the next what's going to perform well. But if you're in an area that's got a rainy summer climate, that late blight resistance can be a very useful characteristic. So the question we keep getting, is it really okay to plant this early? Well, you know, don't fret if you plant it early. We all do it at some point. And boy, 2020 is the year when everybody's doing it. Uh, here's one case where raised planters are likelier, are likely to warm up, have the soil warm up faster, be ready for the plant sooner. I think people planting into raised planters aren't noticing any stress on them at this point. The soil in, the, in that raised bed with the nice fancy soil you bought in and brought in and, and put in there, uh, has gotten to the temperature we're after, whereas out in the open, it's still a few degrees cooler. So plants in raised beds are likelier to recover more quickly than those planted out in the open ground. We have a long season here, so if something went wrong with the first ones, you can continue planting all the way till June. We actually sell tomato plants of smaller fruited types all the way into July, and they still have plenty of time because our gardening season for the summer vegetables goes from April through October. One of the longest growing seasons you're going to find anywhere. So if you're listening locally in USDA Zone 9, Sunset Zone 14, in a warm, dry interior area, you've still got plenty, plenty, plenty of time to plant tomatoes and peppers and eggplant. People are actually kind of in a frantic mood this year for a lot of very good reasons that we talked about last week. Um, if you got started early and they're not getting off to a great start, probably it's temperature related. My suggestion would be to be patient. But the one thing you could do once they've been in the ground for one to two weeks is go ahead and fertilize them with a gentle fertilizer, fish emulsion, or your favorite off-the-shelf soluble fertilizer just to get a little extra boost to get them going faster. But again, we've got plenty of time, so there's time to replace them or time for them to recover. You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT, Davis, California. I want to take a moment to tell you about some of the other programming here at KDRT. A rather important program is the COVID-19 Community Report. Our executive director, Adam Labe-Renault, is back behind the microphone hosting live shows 
Tuesdays, 12 to 12.30, and Fridays, 12 to 12.30, to help update the community about COVID-19. The show is rebroadcast Tuesdays and Fridays at 5 p.m. shows a compendium of local resources with check-ins from local officials and other community leaders, interviews with uh, county officers and uh, county elected officials, city and the mayor, uh, people from the county health office, and so forth. As a companion piece for the show, linked to the weekly updated blog posting of local services and information can be found at kdrt.org. So that's the COVID-19 Community Report with Autumn Labe Renault. Uh, Renault, excuse me. A um, couple of other programs here. Heart to Heart, that's running rebroadcasts right now. Nothing brings greater rewards than a life filled with love and care for people in the world around us. Heart to Heart host Dr. G inspires and teaches listeners to live life richly and lightly. To ask a question on the show, perhaps when it comes back on the air live, you can call 792-1648 during the live broadcast. You can check the Davis Enterprise for guests and weekly topics. It runs Wednesdays noon to 1 and replays Saturdays 7 to 8 a.m. High Country Music Radio with host Rusty Nail. You can join Rusty and explore the diverse musical styles and artists found within Americana, Alt Country, and Bluegrass. High Country Music Radio will feature those artists playing traditional rural music as well as those pushing musical boundaries. Together, we'll tap our feet to music born from the mountains, plains, rivers, and deserts. Consider this an invitation, says Rusty, to leave the city behind. That's Tuesdays, 11 a.m. to noon. Replays Tuesdays, 7 to 8 p.m. We got a nice email here from Eric, who's one of our longtime regular listeners in Southern California, runs Sierra Landscape Maintenance. Just reaching out to you and Lois, checking in on how you're holding up during all this craziness. Our nurseries down here are only taking phone orders and delivering to their front gates for pickup. It's a working model for now, says Eric. Well, you know what, Eric? That's Yes, that's the working model for garden centers all over the country right now. First of all, Lois and I are both fine in good health. Our families are as well. Lois is uh, sheltering in place at home and walking and working in her garden and stuff like that. Uh, my nursery is in a county which has declared garden centers to be essential businesses. We are essential in the sense that we help, we provide people with materials to grow their own food for personal consumption, which puts us in the category of agriculture. And uh, so garden centers are allowed to operate and therefore we are open to the public maintaining social distancing at our nursery. But the main thing we immediately did was we jumped in and offered deliveries all over the area is what it's turned out. Uh, we deliver everywhere. And so our model has been taking orders by email and phone and fulfilling them, calling them, taking payment over the phone, delivering to their door, leaving it on the doorstep, knocking and leaving without contact. Garden centers all over the country are doing this uh, depending on what their state or county or province, I mean, even in contact with some in Canada, uh, by means of a Facebook group, are doing curbside drop in the case of the deliveries or curbside pickup. And so if you're living in an area and wondering whether your garden center can still provide you with plant materials for your vegetable garden, uh, they very likely have arranged a way for you to come pick them up without making any direct contact or have them delivered to your home. Um, one thing I can say is that the craziness hardly describes what's going on right now in terms of demand for vegetable plants and the things to grow them. And uh, we've never seen anything like this. I've been in business since 1981, and we and none of our my fellow nursery professionals anywhere in the country have seen such a rapid increase in demand. We're talking about the Victory Gardens again, and if you go to the Davis Enterprise, 
my column, which ran on April 15th, was about Victory Gardens and the, the return to growing your own food, which has, you know, it's been a characteristic of, of economic slowdowns uh, in the past, recessions like the one we went through a few years ago. Yeah, there's always a big uptick in vegetable gardens and fruit trees, but never coming on this rapidly. So I talked last week about some of the shortages, the spot shortages that might be showing up out there. And they are. There's, there's, you know, we have no basil this week. We probably won't have any basil next week because everybody came in and bought everything we had. It's like the toilet paper of the uh, of the garden industry. Everybody had to have it all of a sudden. Uh, but it'll be there. The good news is the growers can keep planting things. What we've really run into now is a backlog in the seed industry. Uh, four seed suppliers that I work with have all posted on their websites that they are not taking orders for the next anywhere from 10 to 14 days. Uh, as they can just as fast as possible break down the big bags of seeds they get in and put them into packets and ship them out to retailers like myself who put them on the shelf. So you may go into your garden center if they're allowing walk-in, or you may call them if you're looking for a curbside pickup or a drop and find they don't have seeds of the particular thing you're asking for. And it's really perplexing people, but it's really just a, a lag. The seeds are there. They just have to get them into the consumer size units that they would be sold in. And the same thing with things like tomato plants. You know, the one variety that you have to have might not be there this week, but at least I know that the growers are planting them like crazy. So I appreciate the question. Yes, nurseries are very, very busy. Home gardeners are going to be planting vegetable gardens. Obviously, are planting vegetable gardens like you wouldn't believe this year. And I keep joking, but I'm actually serious about this. I am going to be stocking canning supplies in late summer because my guess is a whole lot of people will be growing little tomato plants and things for the first time. Here's the thing. In California, in our climate here in the Central Valley, a grown, a well-grown tomato plant, just you know, given proper care, not anything fancy, not pumped with nitrogen or anything like that, just given regular care in a normal garden, should produce a minimum of 20 pounds of fruit. It's more typically 30 to 40 pounds of fruit on a single plant, starting in about July and continuing total over a period of... July, August, September, October, and even into November. My biggest crops on my tomatoes, and I generally plant 30 or so, are the month of October when I just have baskets and baskets of them. And so if you've, if you've started gardening for the first time and, and you don't know what the volume of production potentially is, um, you may be a little surprised by August and September as the stuff all starts coming in. And if you're in an area like Southern California or the Central Valley, which has a very long growing season, a warm late summer and a warm fall being characteristic and increasingly characteristic of our gardening climate, you may find you have a lot to process. So I suggest you all start looking around for sauce and salsa recipes, canning jars, freezing implements, and uh, figure out where you're going to put the production of uh, 20 to 40 pounds of tomato product from each plant that you purchased and put in the ground. Anyway, thanks very much for the question, Eric. We're all doing well here. And uh, again, as I said last week, my heart absolutely goes out to the small business owners and uh, like yourself, you know, who are, who are scrambling in some cases to keep up their revenues and in other cases have lost everything while they're waiting for this all to pass and no indication of how long that's going to be. I feel very fortunate to be one of those businesses allowed to remain open. And um, I think that helping people garden is one of the most useful things we can do within the limits of broadcasting from home and putting together these podcasts by means of technology that's new to us. So hopefully with a little more practice, Lois and I can do this together in an upcoming show. 
maybe make Zoom work and uh, and have our interviews go the way, or, excuse me, our conversations go the way they've done in the past and keep the Davis Garden Show going, keep you all gardening, helping you become better gardeners. And then in late summer, we'll start swapping recipes for what to do with all that extra produce. Take care. Okay, let's do a quick review of some questions we've received recently. These are also featured in my recent article in the Davis Enterprise, uh, but I want to go over some of the, the basic topics here. Uh, questions about vegetable gardening, and um, this applies somewhat to flower gardening as well. The first question we got is, um, I'm starting a vegetable garden for the very first time. What are some of the basics? And uh, in, in this area, it's important to know your climate, which is hot, dry in the summer, long growing season, that our soils are basically mineral and have very little organic material. They have most of the nutrients that your plants need, so you don't have to fertilize a whole lot here. Those of you listening in sandier soil areas will probably need to fertilize more often. We have the two distinct growing seasons. That takes some getting used to when you move to California, that we have things that love the heat, tomatoes, peppers, all those things we're planting now, and things that don't. And for a lot of beginning gardeners, we're having conversations when they walk in wanting kale and lettuce and things. Well, they're done. That season is over now, unfortunately. Uh, good news is you can plant those in September, October, November, all the way into February. But as we hit the 80 degree mark and stay above that for a little while, they'll definitely be done. And the flavor isn't as good and they try to flower and so forth. So just focus on the summer vegetables now going forward and save some space for those perhaps in the early fall. There's the main thing is that you provide all the water your plants need in the summer here in the vegetable garden. There is no rain at all between mid-May and late October and vegetables are growing then and they need a surprising amount of water. We'll talk more about how to water your vegetable garden in a subsequent broadcast. It is a fact that vegetables use just about as much water per square foot as lawn. But that statistic, which people find disconcerting, you should balance that with the fact that your lawn is usually a thousand square feet or more and your vegetable garden might be five by 10. So you're putting a fair bit of water in one area here in the valley, but it still needs an inch and a half to two inches of water a week. The efficient way to apply that is with drip irrigation system or a soaker hose. I would strongly suggest putting in some kind of simple watering system at the time you plant. It doesn't have to be complicated. Drip systems are simple. Soaker hoses are very easy to install, but sprinklers are not optimal and hand watering, I just honestly don't think you have the patience typically to stand there and water long enough. So the first question, isn't it early to be planting? Well, we've talked about that. For best results, we plant tomatoes in April, peppers and eggplant in May, but you know, it wasn't optimal. We've talked about how to get things boosted up a little bit. If you're doing it for the very first time, it's important to get to know your region, to know your soil. Somewhere along the line, someone will probably recommend you get a soil test done, and that can be very useful. Um, it's not essential initially, but if you're getting ready to fertilize, it would be useful to have a soil test at some point because there's a pretty good chance you'll be buying fertilizer products that contain things you don't need and which you might even be applying in excess, specifically phosphorus. So at some point, go ahead and pay good money to send it off and get it tested. But it's not initially that essential. Uh, two things that I like to say very commonly, give your vegetable garden more room than you're thinking because these are mostly vines that run pumpkins, melons, squash, tomatoes, beans. They need something to run onto, run out, or sprawl out over the garden, you know, the lawn or wherever they, they are in your yard. And to obviate that problem, build support 
for the vines, which includes the tomatoes, the cucumbers, the pole beans, things like that. And then here's one of my 